This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. You know, there is watching all the moving parts and personalities in the world of fashion. And then there's understanding how everything fits together. There's also having some idea of how it all boils down to one single number, a stock price. And all of that is the job of Simeon Siegel, who's the senior analyst at BMO Capital Markets. In this episode of WWE Voices, Evan Clark will speak with the award-winning analyst about where fashion is headed, how we'll get there, and how he tries to keep up with it all. Welcome to WWD Voices. I'm Evan Clark, and it is my pleasure to welcome analyst Simeon Siegel. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Evan. Hey. So uh, let's just dive right in. I think you know inflation is all over the headlines now, with prices across the economy moving up faster than they have in 40 years. And in the fashion industry, you've talked about reverse inflation. Can you explain what that is? And maybe we can just dig in there. You really did dive right in, not even buying me a drink. Straight not, to well, inflation. I like it. <laughs> well, I like to go right to the heart of matter, right? Because this is this is really the matter, though, that in fashion on Wall Street, kind of at gas stations around around the around the country. This is the this is the big issue, right? So you and I have been talking about this. This reverse inflation is a term that I made up that my in-house economists hate me for because I made it up. Um, but it, it, the way I think about it is normally inflation starts from a cost and then the brands decide how much they want to pass on and then the consumer decides what they're willing to take. That's how inflation works. It all happened in reverse with us. Our, our companies, our world, the, the subset of companies you and I talk about all raised price a couple of years ago because they could, not because they had to. So you and I have been calling it AUR, ASP, whatever acronym we want to give for what prices going up means. But what really happened was the CPI went up, the price went up, people spent more. So now it's this interesting dynamic where trying to figure out what inflation actually means for the vast majority of people that have never lived through inflation is an interesting dynamic. And so what it means is that certain people, is that everyone pays more at the pump. Some people have more rent. Some people have more groceries. But what it also means is certain people have more value in their homes, real or paper. So there's a lot of different dynamics here. And I think that's what we are, what you and I have started talking about, where from a retailer and a brand perspective, you've had AUR this entire time, but now two years later, the AUC, now the cost is catching back up. Right. So average unit retail prices were going up. And I think there was this real, there was a strong dynamic last year where the brands, retailers, everyone was kind of looking a little... And I think maybe feeling a little bit like we're geniuses. We've been able to, you know, our brands are so strong, our strategies and our 
customer targeting are so uh, sophisticated that we can raise prices. And everyone was able to do it all at once. So, and then, so this is kind of, well, prices went up because they could, because the consumer, for whatever reason, could bear higher prices. Now it's that tricky bit. Costs are, are coming in, I guess. And, and where are the, so retail and fashion successfully raised prices last year. Are they successfully dealing with the costs? How, how is that now the rubber's meeting the road, kind of what's happening there? So I think the beauty of all of the conversations you and I have always had over the years are what we realize is there's an outcome, there's a singular outcome, but there's different motivations behind it, there's different reasons. And so I think when we look at, so what happened over the last several years, all companies saw their prices go up and thank you for translating the acronym. I should have done that in the past. I made a joke about it and forgot to actually say what it means. So all prices went up. The question is why? And so there's two, if I, if, to, to oversimplify it, there's two ways for prices to go up. One, there's just no inventory. So you sell the same amount of goods at a higher price because there's no discounts for anyone else to go to. Or you make a concerted effort to chop off the bottom tail to say that dilutive customers that need promotions are not people that you want to cater to as a brand right now. And so you're, you're selling to a group of people that were willing to pay a higher price in the first place. What those both translate to are higher prices, but the question is who is sustainable? If all you did was chase inventory up, if, there's, if your competitor is not promoting, therefore you don't have to either, then as soon as they start promoting, i.e. now, you lose that price benefit. Whereas there is a group of companies out there that said, you know what, I'm willing to sell less and charge more. I, by elevating it, my brand, it means I don't need to be everything to everyone. Those are actually more sustainable. And so to your question, when prices, when costs go up, for the brand and the retailer, those that have to give the price back are about to be hit on a double side. Maintain the price can hope to offset. Right. I think, I feel like there's always been this kind of half joke in retail where people would say, oh, well, they, you know, somebody would come in and change strategy and, and they, people would say, well, they fired their, they fired their customer. And it's, we're kind of saying that the, this whole thesis now is that that's the right approach that brand or, or for, for a brand that wants to move higher, that wants to maintain a strong, build a stronger brand image, you basically need to fire some portion of your customer base. So I've been dancing around that term because it just is such a, such a sad sounding term, but, but yeah, right. Like at the end of the day, here's the irony. Exclusivity is bad. Authenticity is good, except they mean the exact same thing, right? At the end of the day, the most exclusive brand is being authentic to their customer base. Not making a normative, it's not moral, whatever. It's just fact, right? The, the more inclusive you are, the harder it is to remain authentic to an actual targeted demographic. And so at the end of the day, brands need to know who they are. Certain brands are supposed to be mass. They're supposed to have very low prices catering to a very large audience. Certain brands are not. If you don't know who you are, if you start chasing an incremental customer that is not authentic to your brand, right? If you're not excluding them, then that will bring you an increment. You'll sell another sweater, but there's some magical invisible sweater that forces you to mark down every sweater beforehand. We don't get to price on the margin. We price the entirety. And if one sweater forces everything before it to be 75%, that's not helping you. And that customer is probably not worth having in the first place. Right. So, uh, or certainly, or for, or for that brand, there's a brand for that customer somewhere, but you exactly. can't, you can't try to be everything to everyone anymore. And 
exactly be successful. So does that, um, is that a line? So that, that's the thing. So this is sort of, you know, my favorite retail geek topic is price promotions, right? And which we've kind of, we're getting at kind of from one side, but for you, just a, a small kind of little bit of history to set it up for years and years and years, fashion has driven sales volume by cutting price and everybody and everyone kind of bemoaned this as bad for margins, bad for business, bad, you know, so now we have that set of brands that is saying, you know, a Ralph Lauren is a very prominent example of a company that's for years, since before the pandemic has been raising their prices higher. They're committed to higher prices and holding AUR. But you have a whole bunch of other companies that I, I don't think maybe have the same commitment. Do we end up with a world where th those companies committed to brand are holding price and pushing higher, whereas it's kind of a promotional food fight on the whole other side of the spectrum? And can everyone really, it, does it become much harder for those brands committed to price to hold it? Like, do we see a bifurcation here now? So I, I think the easy answer is yes. I think you put it perfectly. I think that the brands need, listen, the beauty of selling less and charging more, the beauty of remaining true to your audience size is actually under your control. If you're okay, if you know that I will not promote. So, so this was analysis that my team had done at the beginning of the pandemic, where by our work, at least, the problem with North America retail is not an oversaturation of stores. It's an oversaturation of discounts. How do we know? We did a price elasticity of demand, a very intense, detailed price elasticity of demand analysis, where we found that there were companies such as Victoria's Secret, Under Armour, that could give up if they were committed to raising price by 25%, which sounds like a lot, unless you think about it in the context of a $20 piece of clothing. But if they were committed to raising price 25%, they could give up 40% of their units for zero. They could walk away or to, to use your term because you've already thrown it out. So I'm not going to be blamed for it. Fire 40% of their customers or at least the unit volume and still end up operating profit dollar accretive. They would make more money. Forget about margin, obviously margin, right. but they'd literally make more money by selling 40% fewer units. So I think that if you're in that camp, then you're not phased by your competitors' promotions. That's a hard, it's an easy thing to say, right? You and I are sitting here on the side. It's a hard thing to do. If you're not in that camp and your competitor, your promote, your neighbor puts a 30% off sign, you're going to put a 35%. Right. And that's so, you, so the, the age old whole, the whole kind of rush to cut prices here, I, I think it will be fascinating to watch as people trade down, because that means you're going to have the brand shooting higher are going to have to be willing to take that pain when when people do trade down or people when they do scare off they're going to have to hold that line so that was probably the gift of the pandemic right you and i were talking about this earlier where it's very hard to get in front of people like you and people like me and investors and say get ready we're about to cut revenues for a year right like Get ready, gear up, it's gonna be fun. It just doesn't work. I've seen companies say it, and then after three, not even three quarters, after three months, so after one quarter of having to say it, they revert back and it's hard to watch the revs walk out the door. COVID did this reset, it gave everyone, it forced everyone's revenues down. So the question is who maintains that? I don't cover them, so this is not, I, I could be completely wrong, um, and I also don't know when this is airing, but last night at Restoration Hardware reported, and I'm told that they made a very clear comment that they are not going to chase 
units. They're willing to walk away from market share to maintain the brand elevation because they know that over time, once you give in, it's very hard to get back. Right. You and I have talked about this in the context of Capri. John Idol has explicitly spoken on the conference call. I've asked him this question. He's explicitly said, I will not chase volume for margin so or, or for uh, market share. So it, it, there is. I mean, I think you're totally right, right? It's this bifurcation, but it's easier said than done. And you and I need to make sure that we watch these companies, we hold them to task, and that they're willing to actually let market share walk out the door. Right. Well, it, it, it will. So that that feels it's interesting. Yeah. Every you know has this two year break of the pandemic been enough to change that? That will be for sure interesting to watch. So I'm going to switch topics. I wanted to. I, I'm at heart a financial reporter, and you're a Wall Street analyst. So I want—I I don't think we can get out of this without any kind of numbers. But at, forgive me, podcast land, for reading out a couple numbers. But I think this will lead somewhere interesting. So, looking at total enterprise value, which is the value of all the company's stock and all the company's bonds, over. Uh, EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, all that kind of stuff, which is, that's kind of the standard yardstick for at least if you're buying a company of it's a good it's a way to look at the value of a company and how much every dollar, it, how much credit it gets on Wall Street for every dollar it earns. And I was looking, Simeon, at some of the companies you cover and Nike gets $21 of credit for every dollar it earns. It's, it's EBITDA multiple is 21.6 times right now. Lululemon, 19. If you come down to VF Corp, which owns Vans, the North Face, Supreme, they have 10. Ralph Lauren, PVH, in the four somewhere. So why is it that a dollar earned by Nike is worth five times more to Wall Street than a dollar earned by Ralph Lauren? Yeah, so it's a great question. So if you, if you ask me that question for Lulu, the answer is growth. So historically, and that makes sense, that's easy to understand because what you're paying for is future value, you're paying for future earnings. So if Lulu's growth is 20, whatever the number happens yeah, to well, be. Yeah, it was 19.6, but yeah. So, Nike, so yeah, the, the Nike and Lulu are like 20, but so, so there's a different, so the re, um, there's a differentiation between companies that are growing and companies that are consistent. So a company that's growing doesn't really have, right? It's growth. If you and I were to take its growth forward, roll it forward for Lulu, roll it forward for Ralph, those numbers start converging because Lululemon's EBITDA is going to grow much faster than Ralph Lauren's EBITDA. And therefore the number you're willing to pay simply means how many years out are you willing to look? That's honestly the big problem of what happened with all the tech stocks lately, because if you're looking into the future, the interest rate matters. The other pyre of inflation is the interest rate. There's a lot of pieces in there. But historically, if you know a company is going to double, you're willing to pay more for it today because that valuation is half next year. Very, very oversimplified. Nike, though, does not have that level of growth. There is Nike and off-pricers, and there's a certain group that, that you mentioned there where people have over the last decade started gravitating or willing to pay more for consistency. So I think about it in the context of consistency became the new growth because in a world where you have massive volatility across retail, and remember this was over the last decade plus, call 15 years maybe when we got to this notion of retail as quote dead, which is a theme you and I do not obviously believe, people started worrying and feeling like, I don't know what I can pay. The reverse of paying for a future growth 
is being worried you're going to pay for a future, you're overpaying for a future shrink. So simply knowing that there are these large entities that have shown the ability time in, time out to consistently put up results where you don't have to worry about their competition, that became worth something in and of itself. The problem is the growth part. When you're paying up for growth, you can actually make a numerical argument for it. When you're paying up for consistency, sleep easy at night, that becomes a little bit more qualitative. Right. Interesting. So the Nike is worth so much because Nike is big today and people think it's going to be Nike still going to be Nike in five years and 10 years. Correct. And, and Nike has transcended. Remember, you and I have talked about a lot of like some work that my team did years ago was we found their brands peak. There's ubiquity levels and whether there should be or shouldn't, they end up having similar roles. North America, DTC only brands and DTC, I mean, stores and e-com, not digital versus brick and mortar. So think about owned versus wholesale. If you don't have wholesale, you peak at around 3 billion in North America. If you do, you can peak five, six. Nike dwarfs those numbers. So Nike has transcended all rules of consumer. Right. So how? For Nike, I think I have hypotheses rather than answers because when you transcend every rule in retail, it would be a little bit overly conceited to believe that you can have the answer. But I think what we see is one, Nike more so than being the largest seller of products in the history of time is also the best marketer, one of the best marketers in the history of time. Nike tells phenomenal storytelling and that involves dollars. So Nike has created a world where to compete against Nike, everyone has to spend 10 cents of every dollar on marketing. Well, if you have more dollars, you have more marketing budget too. So that's number one. And that's right. Amazon. That, that's sort of Amazonian. It's the idea yeah. that I can flywheel this and keep plugging in dollars from the revenue into a system that digs my moat deeper and deeper. Right. And that's what it sounds like of, of like you, we are, we are an empire and you know, come at us. <laughs> the second thing, and this isn't fully fleshed out, but it's something that I think about there's something special. So the question every brand needs to internalize, right? You and I spend a lot of time doing a lot of nuance. If we step back and say, what is the number one thing brands have to figure out? I think we can distill it down to how do you marry exclusivity and distribution? How do you figure out how to be the right size? How do you get scale without losing what makes you special? And normally there is a standard. Normally there's Michael Kors has their runway line and then it has the product that they sell in department stores. And the, there's very little overlap. The customer is not normally buying both of those lines. And therefore, when those customers, when you get too many, when ubiquity happens, the runway line starts getting impacted. Nike's very different. The same customer may very well buy the latest LeBron drop and the latest $50 pair of Roshis. Because when Nike, what makes Nike special, the swoosh has become, there are understood different levels in terms of what you're going for. And so the special product, even though it carries the same logo, the runway equivalent carries the same logo, no one who knows would mistake the latest LeBron drop for the $50 pair of shoes you can get somewhere else. So I think there is a distinction that Nike has. And again, this is the one that's, that's still very hypothetical. It's something that we're working to flesh out, but this notion of product, the halo product for others is so far apart from the run from the the diffusion line for others when it comes to footwear and apparel it's not as much of a dichotomy or or rather you can have an overlap and still have distinction within product right and so so you just have a bigger a bigger base that you're growing from so you know and that kind of 
some that's a great hypothesis. Certainly something has to do some it's got to do with this brand somewhere somewhere in there. There's product and brand. And, you know, it strikes me um, recently, Stefan Larson, the CEO of PVH, which owns Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein, is kind of this spring, there was an analyst meeting, they kind of set their kind of longer range targets. And part of the kind of argument there, the thesis there is, we have not one iconic brand, but we have two. And this is the machine that we're kind of growing off of. Can you... And not that certainly growing, you know, can you take a brand? Those are those are undoubtedly very strong, very well known American brands. Ralph is in the same boat. Can those companies sort of transcend and become a Nike or grow exponentially from the base that they're at? So you know we're talking about shrink to grow. Though they've already shrunk to grow. Right. Those are the brands that were too large and came back down. So those are the ones that make the rule. So I think what's important that we do need to remember is every single big apparel brand starts from zero every year. Every single apparel brand starts from zero every year. So this notion that these brands are really big, they're not driving five more dollars every year. They're driving multi-billion dollars of sales every single year without a built-in recurring system. So. I think we do that. Like, this is the biggest joke to me when we talk about, and I'm just, I, I mentioned them before, so I'll go with them. But this notion, when we found out that Victoria's Secret could give up all that volume, that was back in the, the media and my world and investing world. So kind of if we take the confluence of everything you and I touch, we're all calling Victoria's Secret dead. And I would sit there and I'd laugh. It's a $5 billion business. It's obviously not dead. It might not be healthy, but it's not dead. So can they become, they, they've already, they, they have found their saturation point. And I think, we probably do not see it. I think Nike is in this wild exception. And again, I think very much because if we think about that overlap, if if Ralph and Tommy and Cal, if they all want to, I mean, listen, Tommy has gone through the ubiquity level a few times over its history, over the decades, right? That's not a new thing. So I think the easy answer is probably not. I, I think the right thing for brands like that to do is to figure out what is that right level, continue to develop and offer beautiful product that resonates with their target audience, and don't succumb to promoting together. Don't believe that distribution is the answer, is the be all end all. Right, right. So, so brand, it, it's interesting. But again, like focusing on brand, having the best brand that you that you can have, and and getting the and, most and that, out of it. And I think that's the point: the best brand that you can have. Right. It's important, not the best brand that Nike can have, not the best brand that Apple can have. Like, know who you are, know who your customer. The problem is when people stretch beyond. The problem, with all due respect, is when Calvin, as, as a fantastic company, brings in a luxury designer to stretch beyond their scope, right? The problem is when athletic brands uh, have historically bought a bunch of equipment in Connected Fitness and tried to go beyond their scope. So the question is figuring out how do you, in, in the pursuit of growth, make sure that you're actually focused on being maniacally focused on what your brand stands for. And obviously you have to test and, and never stay within the lines. But sometimes the lines just become so far behind that we end up coming back to them pretty painfully once we realize that this growth was not healthy growth. Right. So really, really focusing on that. And I guess also the argument being there's still a lot of these these brands can grow, have sig substantial and, sig and real incremental growth through being better retailers themselves, 
growing their e-commerce business. There's there's real growth and profits to be had in that kind of incremental kind of march up. You don't need to try, you don't need to be blowing up to necessarily become Nike. Yeah. Listen, everyone should should dream of being Nike, but probably should not aspire to be. I think right. that at the end of the day, it's nice to have the dream. But if you believe you are going to be Nike, you're probably going to make the wrong decisions. Right. I don't know that Nike could become Nike again, right, if they were starting right now. It's just right. what they have done is so special and literally transcends what anyone else has done that they're a great person to have up there as the, this is what I would love to be. But if you make every decision as if you're Nike, that's problematic. And then that that's also, I mean, you think about it in the context of a Lulu, right, which is on their way, Lulu's margins, you talk about EBITDA, Lulu's profitability is drastically higher than Nike's. So is the right decision for them? Do they want to be Nike, right? Do they want to get to that scale if it ends up chopping their profitability in half? I would say no. They might disagree, but but I think at the end of the day, it's it, that's that part of the conversation. Right. So, okay, so having we having just gone through all these numbers, um, that's also just a part of the equation when you're kind of looking at and evaluating companies. How much, how much is it is what you do about numbers and how much of it is about people and strategies, knowing, understanding who the CEO is, how they're going, the team they've built, the plan they have. So you're asking me to move away from the numbers by quantifying exactly how much time I spent on it. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no, no, but how, but, but, yeah, no. the people, how much yeah. do the people matter and how much does that, you know, does the investment thesis depend on, well, the number not might not be great, but this is the leader who's going to whatever, make it happen. So listen, the yeah, there are people that do what I do for financial firms, for biotech firms, for companies that have no, that have much less of a qualitative element. The reason I love this world is the perfect fusion for me of qualitative and quantitative. So at the end of the day, what happens here is I have to understand, to, to me, the numbers are what matter because the numbers don't lie and the numbers are a manifestation of what's actually happening with the company. But numbers are the output. Everything you just described is how I get to the number. So I need to understand the management team. I need to understand what's happening on the product side, the brand storytelling side, the inventory management side. I need to understand all of those things. But all of those things are, listen, if you're not a good storyteller, you're not a good retail CEO, I need to be able to take the story and distill it down to the facts. The numbers are the facts. So that to me is this notion. It's like it's like in the Matrix when there's that scene and then like Cypher is just looking at the green numbers and he says, I don't even see the numbers anymore. That That's what the numbers are to me. It's not a, oh, this guy loves to sit in front of an Excel model and say that's what the company is doing. It's no, the Excel model is actually telling me everything you just described without any sense of emotion and subjectivity. So the emotion and subjectivity help me get to the result, if that right. makes any sense. Yeah. So it's, the storytelling, it's interesting. We're kind of at this moment where a lot of companies – Several have had investor days. How important are those investor days? How important are these five-year plans when companies make these big, because sometimes it seems like the companies come in, they make a big statement, this is where we're headed, and then they just kind of repeat that for, for you know, the <laughs> next three years. So how important are these moments, these big investor days that we're seeing? There's a term, sell the news. A lot of times that happens, right? right? Like the notion of having an investor day for the sake of having an investor day doesn't help anyone. Having an investor to tell me something new to create an outline that we will then hold you to and you will hold yourself to, there's value there. But 
the world changes. We, we have to understand retail is fickle. The question is how it's entertained. If I only hear from you, if the investors only hear every three years an investor day, well, then the significance of the investor day is going to be a lot more impactful because that's going to be the only semblance of numbers and news. If we're hearing an update every few every few months, right on the quarter, if you're a transparent company, it just depends. It's not an easy, it's not a, it goes back kind of everything you and I was talking about. Like I wouldn't paint that with a broad brushstroke. I think the question is what is the information flow look like on a regular basis? Right. So there are plenty of companies that I feel much more close to and have a much stronger view of their goals that don't have analyst days and vice versa. Right. So depending on just how much, where, where how much information you're getting. So we just have a couple more minutes here. What's a, I, I've, I've thrown out a bunch of questions. What's a, what's a company, what's a story in retail that we haven't touched on here. That's important. That's maybe underappreciated a company to look at. What's, what's a, any kind of parting so, topic listen, here? You, you and I talk about a lot of things that I really enjoy. I, I just, my, what I try to do is the nature of this sector is stories become very loud. And so what I try to do is always get behind the story, look at those numbers like we were talking about to figure out what's happening because you can end up at the same answer, but the driver might be drastically different. So whether that's this notion of reverse inflation, meaning it doesn't, how, it doesn't matter how healthy you were last year, costs are catching back up and you don't have the price well anymore. Therefore, everyone's gonna see margins go down, even the great Nike, that's one. But number two, this other, there's this new idea now about recession, and there's a lot of really interesting ideas, and you and I didn't talk about this at all yet, but I wonder, I just, listen, we, we saw a different level of spending and discretionary versus staple items, the past earnings cycle. The question's why? And so it's easy to say, well, that's obvious, everyone's tightening up their belt. But I also wonder if you think about the last two years, everyone bought a lot of discretionary items. You and I have talked about like whether it's the obvious one, which is the Peloton, or maybe people bought a lot of athletic apparel and sneakers and furniture and outdoor furniture, like all of these different components where people were inspired to accelerate their purchase. No one argues that Peloton did not pull forward demand anymore, right? The, the, it used to be people thought they expanded it. Now it's a pull forward. I wonder if it's the same thing. And the reason I bring that up is when someone walks into, when someone looks at what they already have and they say, you know what, I don't need to buy another grill right now. That's a very different leading indicator than if they say, I can't afford to buy another grill right now. Right. And so that story, the question of what is actually going on with the consumer right now, I think is something that probably isn't dug into as much as it should. And what we increasingly believe is there's an army of secret mini Pelotons out there. And what I just mean that people, these companies are not bad companies. They're just gonna, they need a breather on the revenue. And people right. bought a lot of discretionary items and, one, and we're just operating from the wrong base. And if you can reset the base, then there's really nice underlying growth. Right. It's interesting because some, some companies are going to get the credit. We talked about Nike a lot, but you know, even if Nike's margins go down, people are still going to believe Nike is still going to be Nike in five years or, or something like it. Like yeah. they have that, there's that kind of core belief. Whereas it's other, some other companies might be like, oh, all of a sudden, your t your consumer takes a breather and everything is wrong and you need to change everything. So there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's, uh, it, that's, that's the fun part for me is that watching where all these numbers and the margins and all this stuff kind of matches with the kind of human stories of the CEOs and the companies holding the line or trying to, you see them kind of trying to wrestle their vision into, into reality and getting wall street to go along with them. 
The qualitative, the human, that's the driver. The quantitative, that's the measure. Yeah. That's how we know, right? That's, that's how you can say, did what you promise actually happened? And where do we go from there? All right. So any, any last words then, Simeon? Yeah, so I think what's interesting is right now we're going back to this notion of retail is a problem, right? Retail was dead pre-pandemic. It became the best thing that you could imagine during the pandemic. And now we're, now we're back to concern. I think what's interesting is if you think about it, you look back the wealthy, the list of the wealthiest people in the world, right? How many of the top five are from retail? The answer is a lot. So what I think about is I think retail is this system. It's, a, it's an implicit social contract. I think that there's a P&L. So there are costs that need to be absorbed. And the question is who takes them? We have luxury on one side. We have discounters on the other, and we have everyone in the middle. What makes the two special? Luxury, the customer says, I will pay all of your cost of goods. This is a premium product. I will pay it all. But in response, the retailer says, okay, I'll give you champagne. I'll put a store on Fifth Avenue. I'll give you glossy advertisements. I will pay all the OPEX. And so what is the response? Well, in that scenario, gross margin, highest in the business. SG&A, highest in the business. EBIT margin, highest in the business. Fast forward to the other side of the spectrum, discounters. The customer says, I'm not going to pay a dime or a penny of your cost of goods sold. But in response, I'm effectively going to be your employee. You roll out the racks for me at an off-pricer, and I will pick, pack, ship, fulfill it myself. Forget about no champagne. I hope the floor is clean. You know what I mean? Like, that's how we think about it. And so what does theirs turn into? Well, the gross margins are the lowest in the business, but so are the OPEX. And they may not have LVMH-level margins, but they're the second highest in the industry. So it's just this social contract of understanding, do the retailers and the customers know what they are supposed to be? Are they in agreement? The problem is when they're not. When a brand, when a customer walks into a department store expecting to get both service and no cost of good, and the retailer expects to hold back on the employment, but expects to get full price, that's where we get the problem. And I think that's this zero sum game conversation. When they agree, retail's beautiful. Right. So there's a negotiation. So somewhere that's, that's where is, if you're at one end of the, of the spectrum, it's a simple, it's a simple equation. If you're walking into whatever, a Macy's, a Bloomingdale's, a Banana Republic store or something, it's like, am I getting what I, what I'm paying for? Is the service good enough or is the product good enough or where it's squishy? And, and to be clear, I happen to use the obvious high and low income because those sides of the barbells are the most extreme, but it, it's not a high and low income conversation. It's simply going back to the conversation we had earlier, part of the conversation we had earlier, it's simply do, are we in agreement? Do we know what we are supposed to be? Are we overstepping our bounds? Or are we being true to our proposition and our expectation on both sides, the customer and the brand? If you are, if the customer walking in and the, and the retailer setting up knows exactly what they are supposed to be and agrees and doesn't try to, to again zero sum game it out of the other player then it's a really strong and healthy relationship where you can create an economical and an emotional attachment that lasts for a very long time it's when you start fighting right embrace the social contract throw away the zero sum game when you start fighting that's where it just becomes how much can i take from you on both sides right all right that's a great place to leave it. Simeon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to our yeah. listeners. Stay tuned for another episode of WWD Voices, where we go deep on the world of fashion, business, luxury, and beyond. Great to be here.